The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day and welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, the President and Dean of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and starting this summer, our new law school at Kern County College of Law. And I'm joined today with my co-host, or by my co-host, law professor and attorney Stephen Wagner. Good day, Stephen. Greetings, Mitch. Happy to join you. Always glad to have you on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. Although it's Saturday, right. Saturday for us today, but as we need to remind everyone, this it would be Thursday if you're listening to us on voiceamerica.com, which is when we, we play on that. So, well, welcome to Thursday for, for those that are uh, time-shifting. How about that? All right, <laughs> we'll make the necessary adjustments. Speaking of time, yeah, we've got a time change coming up, don't we? We do, we do. And, and in fact, for those who've been with our show for the last three years, we've actually changing our schedule a bit today. You'll notice some different breaks. Uh, if, if there's any uh, you know, slight disruption, know that it's the first time with a, a new schedule. Jason Struby, our engineer extraordinaire, has us set up. But you'll notice fewer sponsorship breaks and a little more discussions. So that's our goal, isn't it, Steve? That's great. So we're working with a new clock, as they say in the trade. That's exactly right. So uh, anyway, so today it's uh, we're going to tackle a topic, Stephen, that you and I have talked about uh, but we, kind of between each other. But the question was how to tackle it on air and to try to give it a, a fair judge, uh, you know, a fair and balanced judgment. And we're going to talk about the FBI. And I can't even imagine why people think that that might be a hot topic in the news today. <laughs> That's right. So the Federal Bureau of Investigations, whose mantra is fidelity, bravery, and integrity. Yes. How's that for a little bit of a tease? Because it, we can talk a little bit about those ideals and whether they're actually being fostered at this time. I think that's right. And, and I think what we're going to try to do is talk about the issues that have been swirling around the FBI over the last several weeks and probably over the next several months. Uh, and not necessarily from a political standpoint, because as lawyers... You know, we're interested in, in process and the justice system, and I can tell you that I have some grave concerns about the way the process has been rolling out over the past several months. Uh, and as I, do I, as do I, and I think I, I appreciate your recognizing the fact that we are going to do our level best to avoid 
political spins or tipping our hand in terms of where we personally uh, fall in terms of political alignment. I think we can do it objectively without going there, Mitch. So I'm glad that you did that. I think we can, because actually this is this is one of those cases where the, the FBI Director James Comey, I think, has made just about everybody unhappy. So he's he's broadly upset folks from the right to the left through the middle for those who are apolitical. I mean, those who just, uh, the politicization of the FBI is something that I think almost all of us who are involved in the continuum of the justice system think is a bad thing. It just I think that's right. I, I do think that's right, Mitch. I think you can safely say there's universal disdain for anything that becomes potentially political connected with the actions and decisions by the FBI and their administration. And I, I do think that's a good point. And you know, I think it would help to look into a little history of the FBI too, Mitch, because it's interesting to, to look back and to see historically why that agency was developed. You know, and it was President Roosevelt that, that really spearheaded it and it came after the assassination of President McKinley and it really was an agency that was designed to fill a much-needed gap because of a lot of corruption connected with factories. We can go back to kind of the untouchables or the old Elliott Ness days. That's those, exactly right. That, yes, that yes. Program. And, and, and that was really the genesis of it. There was an absolute need for there to be an agency that could actually... They, they really did step in for the Secret Service. If you look back to the history, I, I read Lewis Free's book, uh, former FBI commissioner, a, a Bill Clinton appointee, and it was a really good read where he offered a lot of history, and he talked about, um, ironically, law enforcement over the Clinton years, and it was a really good historical read for those that, uh, that might be interested. But history is important. Well, I do. There, there is one little aspect of irony here that I w as we were preparing for the show, I saw that the the FBI was established in 1908, and 1908 was a big date that was bandied about here over the past two weeks or so, when that was the last time that the Cubs won the World Series. Oh, that's good, Mitch. <laughs> hey, that was clever. Very good. So here you have you know, 1908. For those who, who find symbology and dates, uh, 1908's a big number over this period yeah, of a couple good. weeks. That's very <laughs> artful of you to weave that in. So oh, you know, one of the things I thought we might just start with is that Unless people really stop and think about it, my guess is most individuals have no idea what delineates the role of the FBI. What do they actually do? And how are yeah. they different from other law enforcement agencies and other federal agencies? Yeah, that's a good starting point. Uh, so if you really look to the agency, first of all, in terms of jurisdictionally, uh, where do FBI offices reside? Obviously, the main FBI office is on the Beltway in Washington, D.C. There are then, I think, 56 additional offices that are called regional offices. In California, we have San Francisco, Sacramento, San Diego, and Los Angeles. 
And then there's what they call satellite or regional offices. And I think there's maybe over 400 of those nationally. And the jurisdiction is determined based upon the nature of the crime, typically. So if it's a federal statute, uh, I'll give an example of bank robbery, which is an, an interesting one because both the state and the federal government can be the prosecuting agencies in that type of crime. But it's usually driven by statute. You know, and if you look to see uh, an example of, of certain crimes would be racketeering-based crimes, antitrust crimes, crimes that involve crossing state lines or interstate commerce, corruption, uh, certainly terrorism is another category. So... Cybercrime, I saw cybercrime as the civil rights, white-collar yeah, crime. That's right, and then often drug crimes too, Mitch. Mm -hmm. You know, that large-scale dealing and uh, importation of drugs because it involves very often the introduction of contraband from another country. So, so, it's, so, so, you, it. so you make a good point that, uh, again, it comes second nature to us, but I think a lot of people don't realize that there's an entire set of state laws. We've talked about even times where you know, some things are driven by the constitutional rights under the state law, and then there's a completely separate set of federal laws. And so what we're talking about and everything you just lined up were elements of various federal laws, and that's where the FBI comes in. That's right, yeah. And then in, in, in certain cases, there's what they would call, or what is called, dual jurisdiction, meaning that the state or the federal agency could be the lead agency. A good example would be civil rights violations. They, you actually have a jurisdictional option very often uh, when you're pursuing a civil rights case. Now, that's a jurisdictional question civilly. For instance, in police officer uh, unlawful force cases, the, the plaintiff in that kind of case can file a suit in federal court or in state court. And so there's an example here uh, locally on the Central Coast. There was a, a corporation that's being investigated for, uh, they did payroll work for individual companies. And all of a sudden it appears, uh, a cor alleged, according to the news, that there's seven, eight, nine million dollars missing. And you'd say, well, why, how and why would the FBI get involved in what appears to be some type of a collapse of a local corporation. Well, it turns out this corporation operates in 48 states, and these issues are going on across state borders. So isn't that exactly one of the examples you that's gave, a, right? Yeah, that's a really good example. I mean, the one you're offering now is much different than I think I offered the transportation or movement of drugs or drug couriers that move from one state to another. In your example, it's a different version for, you know, potentially a so-called white-collar crime, mm -hmm. which, which is another, you know, that's another category. White-collar crimes are, are antitrust, mortgage fraud, money laundering, those mm -hmm. kind of cases 
and these are that's right and these are things that are frequently they they don't fall in a specific state they cross state borders and in some cases the things you mentioned they cross international borders uh, you talked about the offices around the United States I was quite surprised that there are over 60 offices of the FBI internationally I always thought that they were exclusively within the US borders and in this modern age of dealing with things such as terrorism uh, counterintelligence, cybercrime, they have to have international offices as well. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And so the other thing that, that I, I think people don't realize is that there's delineation between what the FBI does and even other federal agencies. So the, the federal law gives the FBI authority to investigate all federal crime that's not assigned exclusively to another federal agency. So that's right there in the U.S. Code. So right. it's one of those interesting aspects of the law. We've seen it before where it's what they get to do is defined by what others are not already doing. I guess that's kind of an inartful right. way to say it. But they get everything that isn't otherwise assigned somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, if you if you look back to the history and you looked at what started as an actual order, and I think it came from Roosevelt's attorney general, uh, Bonaparte, who was actually related to Napoleon Bonaparte. Boy, you are uh, really showing your history chops on well, this I, one. Well, <laughs> I grabbed the Lewis Free book okay. and just got, I tried to do a speed read on some things and, if you go back there, though, that's actually the origin. It's almost like a catch-all. What's not defined or assigned to other agencies went to the to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And now, if you look at the DOJ website and you look at the number of agencies that fall under the wing of the Department of Justice, wow, it's it's intense. There's a lot of different agencies with a lot of different type of uh, responsibilities. So, and I think there's, uh, I, f I was looking for my notes here, what, 35,000 agents? I mean, I think people don't also realize how just large it is as, as a force of, of security. You know, 35,000 agents across the United States and across the world. That's a yeah, lot that's of folks right. to manage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, as you put it, so they say, uh, they, the the broad topics for the FBI. So we're talking recently about FBI investigations. So what do they investigate? Kind of to hit those high points again from what you were saying. You know, terrorism, counterintelligence, cybercrime, public corruption, which is what's been in the news here over the past several weeks, civil rights, organized crime, white-collar crime, violent crime, and really anything that falls into this category of a weapon of mass destruction. So yeah, even in the bombing cases where it was one bomb at one location, if it was determined to be a, a WMD, the FBI gets jurisdiction to investigate. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, having heard you list all those, Mitch, one thing that most of those types of crimes have in common is that they often cross state lines. Um, Cybercrime, that's the electronic transfer often of information that often goes from one state to another or one jurisdiction to another. So they really do have that one hallmark uh, feature uh, as a similar attribute. And, and that's one of the things that I think you can say is 
pretty common in terms of when the FBI gets involved. So we're going into our first break, but when we come back, let's talk about the difference between the investigative responsibilities and prosecutorial responsibilities, because I think that's been pretty gummed up in the news here and trying to explain that. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the FBI, its role as an investigator. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy LaRiviere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com.
Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitchell Winnick with my co-host Stephen Wagner. Today we're talking about the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And during the first section, we framed what the role of the FBI is. We talked about the, the categories of investigations they do. And Stephen talked about the history of it. It goes back to 1908. Stephen, what I'd like to talk about now is what I think may have confused people over the past several weeks. The difference between the role of an investigative agency and a prosecutorial agency. So that's been your career as a prosecutor and as an attorney. Can you help folks understand the distinction and and the relationship between the FBI and the Justice Department? Sure. So the two agencies, the wings, the investigative wing and the prosecutorial wing, are inextricably tied, meaning that ultimately there will be collaboration between the two. But I think a good way to think about it, Mitch, is that the investigative wing is responsible for fact gathering, ruling in or ruling out whether or not crimes have been committed. And then a report is written, and it could be preliminary in in nature. And it's usually submitted to the prosecuting agency. Now, in this case, in a federal case, it's going to be the Department of Justice. And trial deputies from the Department of Justice would be responsible for pursuing and actively prosecuting crimes. So they're a separate, they're a separate agency, and they have a they, separate they role. Separate. They have a different they mandate, right? They do. And, and typically, and what I think is similar, and I can use an example as a state prosecutor, we rely upon the fruits of an investigation that's conducted by our local agencies. And that could be police, then, it could be the sheriff, it could be a, a number can, of other, right? Sure, it can. And, and, of course, it often involves percipient witnesses, civilian witnesses. You know, a report can include input from a number of people that may or may not be providing relevant evidence that relates to a potential crime. The charging decision is made by the prosecuting agency. And that's a tenant that's really consistent throughout the nation. So so the, so the FBI in this case is the investigatory agency. They're going to they're going to do everything you just said. They're going to they've Absolutely. they've been given evidence of what they think is enough of a threshold issue to open an investigation. So they they just don't do it on their own motion. I mean they've they have been brought evidence in some form or another, right? That's right. That's right. So for instance, if we were to look at the emails for example right all right let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room sure right? these are the emails uh from that hillary clinton had on a private server so there's no no doubt in anybody's mind that those now exist that's right all right both the so, server so, existed and the emails existed both sides agree to that correct <laughs> correct so the agency vested with investigating the nature of the emails and the substance behind the emails and whether or not it does or does not meet the elements of a potential crime. All right, and and I'll just pick one for now, public or governmental corruption or potential breach of national security. How about those two? Yeah, those are are good, good two to start with. Okay, so there's evidence to suggest that the emails 
may have violated or placed national security in jeopardy. If that's the case, then the investigative agency, the FBI, would be the agency responsible for fact-gathering. That's exactly right. So that's, facts, that's what right? we talked about in the first section. So that falls right. squarely within the FBI's mandate that if that issue has been raised, it's the FBI's job to investigate. Right, right. Now, and they should be doing so without influence from the prosecutor initially. So I had mentioned earlier, Mitch, that there isn't, the agencies are inextricably tied, meaning that ultimately they collaborate. But what needs to happen first is that there needs to be some kind of an investigative report that has to be well beyond draft phase before it gets into the agency to prosecute. And, and how a case is prosecuted, we're hearing a lot about indictments, potentially, which would mean that the case uh, would go before a grand jury that would sit and decide. There would be a, a group of individuals who sit in judgment to decide whether there's enough evidence or it's presented to a congressional body to decide whether or not there's enough. So that's where the transition happens, if I understand this correctly. So you've got the investigative agency, in this case the FBI, had enough information that they believe rose to the level of the potential of violating a federal law or uh, putting national security at risk, both of which fall squarely within their mandate. They independently begin that investigation. They come to some con conclusions based on what they summarize the data. And then there's the transition. They present that to the prosecuting authority, which as you That's pointed right. out, in this case would be the Justice Department. That is right. And now, Mitch, one other thing I would add is that it is not uncommon for the investigating agency to submit reports to the prosecuting agency, even though those reports are not in final form. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not uncommon for the prosecuting agency to communicate with the investigative wing really on matters that relate to the strength of the initial investigation or what is loosely called follow-up. So in other words, if there's some support for wrongdoing, yet there's a need for additional information, the prosecuting agency can certainly ask for follow-up and quite frankly should be doing so, either to rule in or rule out illegal conduct. So what's come to the forefront in the question we've all been dealing with recently is that it, it appears to be highly unusual for there to be a third interim step in which the investigative agency takes their report to the public in the gap between what they have determined and when the prosecutorial authority, in this case the Justice Department, would be making a determination of whether they're going to move forward on an indictment or criminal charges. That's right. And, and of course, the added intrigue here, Mitch, is that all this is playing out in the media. And of course, there's different media uh, outlets with completely different uh, agendas, if you will. Uh, and it really makes it very, very challenging, quite frankly. And, and I think you mentioned this in the lead in. It's really kind of... Uh, put a stain on the FBI, or at least the appearance of some kind of wrongdoing. 
Because you've spent many years as a prosecutor. I would assume that you might have been a bit upset if, if you heard the recommendation from your investigative unit through the media before you heard it to yourself. Would I be Absolutely. correct in that assumption? <laughs> you, you, you would. I mean, I've known you. you I've known you for quite some time. I can visualize essentially the steam coming out of your ears. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> this this is true. Um, I, along with my present colleagues and former colleagues, would feel the same way. I think you're right. There'd be universal outrage over that happening. And, and it would have nothing to do with the underlying politics or alignment of the issues. I mean, what you're going to do is the same thing that you would hope they're preparing for you, is you take the elements of a crime and you try to match the underlying facts to determine whether there's a you know, reasonable argument to be made that those facts will align with the required elements of a specific crime, right? I mean, this isn't rocket science. It does That's take right. special training, but, but it's really just an alignment issue. This is what it takes to prove a crime. These are the specific elements, and you've walked us through elements of crime many times on this show, and that's what the investigator does, because you as the prosecutor aren't out there on the street. It might be in on television they're out there doing investigations, but that wasn't your role as the prosecutor, was it? No. No, no absolutely not. And you frequently might send an investigative agency back out and say, you need to show five things. I'm only seeing four of the five things here unless you can bring back evidence that can be proven in a court of law and is acceptable in a court of law. On the fifth item, my hands are tied. It requires yeah, all I, five items. You're right, Mitch, and I, I appreciate your sharing that. I mean, any prosecutor is honor-bound to look very carefully at the strength of the evidence before making a charging decision. And the gold standard is always whether or not there is enough evidence to support beyond a reasonable doubt as the quantum of proof, ultimately. You've got to judge it by that. You don't, it's not guesswork. It's not a maybe. You really have to be very careful. And that's why there's great prosecutorial discretion that can be exercised at any stage, Mitch, in a case. Even after a case has been charged. Cases can later be dismissed because it's been determined that something was improperly documented. Yep. And, so, and, and my guess in over your career, you have had those you know, challenging discussions with, with investigators who truly believe that they've made the case because they've invested a lot of time. You know, this is their, their professional uh, reputations on the line. They've brought it to you because they honestly believe that they've proven the elements. And there are times that your judgment had to overrule and say, I just don't see it. I, you know, I, I, you, it's too weak. And my guess is, you know, there was conflict there. That's right. And then typically what happens, Mitch, within an office is if there is conflict, there's a vetting process where peers, colleagues are brought in to, to, really make the decision much more objective. And that's, uh, that's the system throughout all 58 counties in California for sure. And I'd like to think that's the same system that the Department of Justice would employ. So what you and I see in, in the stories that have been in the paper of the, of the questions that they're, you know, that they're uh, junior 
members of the respective offices are unhappy with decisions that have been made about whether a certain case should or shouldn't be prosecuted. I mean, I would have to believe that that probably defines every single day of your career. Of course there are going to be differences of opinions on decisions like that, and the more, uh, the more uh, high-profile and complex an issue is, the more likelihood is that there'll be some difference of opinions. Yeah, so, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. So the very fact that there's disagreement in and of itself doesn't show dysfunction. In fact, I would argue that that's exactly what you want to have on really complex matters. You want to have really smart people on both sides arguing it right down the line to make sure that if they can't get the alignment between the the elements necessary for the crime and the evidence that it takes to prove it in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt, then there should be that kind of a, of a gnashing of teeth and arguing and vetting. And if it doesn't align, it doesn't align. And what happened? You don't prosecute, do you? Well, well, let me be careful with my endorsement on that one, Mitch, a little okay. bit, because I, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to imply that I, that I agree that the rank and file agents within the FBI, those that are disenchanted, to put it mildly, about uh, Commissioner Comey's conduct, you know, I, I still think they've got a valid, valid concern. And quite frankly, I think it comes from pride. Yeah, and I think your your point. Yeah, your caution is well taken because you know they they uh, they you know they don't want. Well, let's let's go back a step. So my my point I think is that in a general give and take of investigators and prosecutors, there's going to be a natural amount of disagreement as you're trying to make a case. On the other hand, those who are doing the work down in the trenches don't want to believe that there's somebody politically putting their thumb on the scale and tilting something for a reason that isn't based on the evidence. Is that a fair Absol way to say ab it? Absolutely, Mitch. I mean, it's got to be distasteful to a rank-and-file agent to see their leader enjoying uh, making statements and playing it out in the political fashion. All right, let's come back on that one because, of course, that's the hot button. We're going out for another break for a short time. Don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? 
Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host with my co-host Stephen Wagner. And we're talking about the complex issue of the FBI, its role as an investigative agency, and its relationship with the Justice Department, which is the prosecutorial agency. And we were just getting to the the key point, Stephen, when we took that break, which is the concern. We, we talked about the natural, the, the natural process of the give and take between investigators and prosecutors about whether the elements of a crime have been met and could be successfully prosecuted. But we also talking about the concern within an agency that is that should be apolitical and the concern by some that perhaps there was a political thumb on the scale on making that decision whether or not there was, the, the, the elements of certain crimes were met. So you were just about to talk about that. Let's, let's go there. Yeah, so Mitch, I was getting into the issue of how rank and file feels, and I think I finished by just using the word pride and saying that I would imagine that a lot of agents that have invested their careers and the optics alone, I think, have got to be troubling for any agent. And, and we're, we're not into the merits yet, Mitch. I don't think either one of us can really speak directly to whether um, it's true that national security was breached to the extent that something uh, horrific is going to come from it. But if you just looked, for instance, at the Trey Gowdy exchange, and I know you saw that yes. on, the, on the Hillary emails. 
or even uh, Jason Chaffetz, uh, who was kind of, I guess, Gowdy watered down a bit. But Trey Gowdy vigorously questioned Comey. And I really think that the strength of what came out of that was clear evidence that there was inappropriate use. And I'm speaking about the use of the private server. So now we've got Comey announcing that he's looking to reopen an investigation. And, and that appears to be motivated politically. And so that would be no different. That would be no different in a local race. For as, as we know, in California, I, the, the district attorneys are elected, right? If we were five days from a district attorney race, and this kind of a scenario came up, everybody would be screaming foul as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think that's right. And it really that's doesn't matter what party. I mean, this isn't about the party. It's that the investigative process of of crimes and prosecution are not supposed to be part of the political spectrum. They're part of the justice spectrum. Yeah, so, so let me, let, here's the other one that's a rock in my shoe, Mitch, and I could just share this openly. To hear Comey say that there was not enough evidence to move forward or that no federal prosecutor would move forward on the strength of the evidence as developed. At I think that he said time. no reason. No reasonable. <laughs> he did. You're right. Good point. Good point. No reasonable. He, he tried to throw us a, a basic standard in there. I think this okay, test of so reasonableness. Take, <laughs> yeah. So I'll take the date. Then. Right. I mean, the the implication there is that the only prosecutor that would move forward is a renegade. Right. Or someone who or someone who doesn't apply objective standards. So even the language uh, and, he used there was was baiting the issue of. <laughs> You're right, that, that anybody who would disagree with him must be a renegade. Yeah, and, and I mean, if you look at the way that trickles down, think about rank and file or those that may have been involved, agents. And, and they don't need to be directly involved in, in uh, political corruption. You could have agents that do different type of work. That's why I just talked about the general pride factor. You know, who would want that? And I think you're right to mention that. And to look at that even on a more local platform, the same thing could happen locally. And I think it's uh, it does affect pride to see that kind of willingness. And the part I struggle with is someone like James Comey, who's had an, uh, no question, an illustrious career, spoken highly of by many people at, at every stage. He was a U.S. attorney before he got involved with the FBI. I mean, he knows how the system works. And I... He also knew that his most recent statement couldn't be resolved in the time frame before the election would be held. And then that gets into an issue that most of us didn't realize, that evidently there are in-house rules, right? These in-house rules that have been around for several decades that to keep something from this like this happening, you don't inject an investigation into the political system within the last 30 to 60 days before an election. So you're speaking of the, the timing issue? The timing issue, that even if everything was lined up, that everything should go right back down the path for aligning the investigation with the charges with an indictment at the other end, right? So that's that would be, let's say it's marching down that. Have you ever gone to the public in a case you've worked with knowing that you would talk about it halfway through knowing there was still a couple months worth of work to be done? 
Well, there you, now, now you've hit another core. We've talked about this topic before, and that's ethics and professional responsibility. You know, you do not speak openly about the merits of the case, uh, especially sharing facts that could sway uh, the trier of fact, which would be a jury in our system, right? We've had that topic that, before. That's right. We And that didn't you don't have to throw an election into it. It's just a general, fundamental not general, a fundamental principle of the justice system is you don't go public to taint the jury or the community unless you have the facts lined up, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So I yeah. found that very puzzling. And again, not, not from a political side, but as a lawyer, I thought it just, it did such a, it gave such a black eye to the process from someone who, for all intents and purposes, knows how the system works. That's that's what puzzles me so much in this. Yeah, yeah, no, I, w- I would agree with that. So I think what we see is that it's, it's interesting that it really, we're not talking about uh, the alignment of, you know, lawyers and judges and investigators who are conservatives or liberals or who are voting for one candidate or the other. I think what what the kind of the outrage or the just the ire that's coming out for most of us is that that's just not the way the system is supposed to work. You know, Mitch, I would like to think that there's bipartisan outrage. I over think this. there is. I really would, and okay, perhaps there is, but I'm skeptical. Uh, it, it it should, in sense, both well anybody forget political persuasion. It, it should, in in sense. I think the wisdom and minds of anybody, frankly. So let's talk about. So where does it go? Let's let's assume we get past the the election, and some some individuals will be listening to this show. The election will have already happened, and so we will then know what the answer is, and whether this really was much ado about nothing. Uh, politically, it's always possible that's the case, but I think as you and I are making the point, from a legal process standpoint, this is this is an issue that's not going to go away. It no, goes no. beyond the case. This goes to the process of how does the FBI work, and how is that trust factor going to be built between the investigative unit, the FBI, and the Justice Department, right? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Of course, it, 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 we'd be... Uh silly not to, to acknowledge that it's going to affect uh, everyone on Tuesday for those that didn't mail in their ballots already, right. because I think it's probably affected the election. Uh, you know, the, the issue of where do we go if Hillary wins the election? What happens in terms of the process versus what happens if she does not and Trump wins? Interesting issue. It is. Uh, and I, I thought an equally interesting issue is so if you're James Comey and you've done a pretty good job of upsetting either one of the candidates who are about to be your boss, uh, he's, he's appointed for 10 years. Let's get that out there. So the question is, can, can, is his job at risk? Well, he has a 10-year appointment, but he is not above being fired, right? That's right. So the president right. has the authority to terminate the director of the FBI, and make a new appointment. Uh, and so now the question is, is it, e- even if you believe that he has failed in the principle of his job to do this in a non-political way, 
would either candidate be comfortable in the aftermath of the election of, of firing him? And as we were driving up today, I, I knew I was going to get to this point of the conversation, and I was thinking, God, I wonder what I would do. You know, would I have the, the fortitude to say, you just, you just a really bad job here and yeah. <laughs> violated a pretty fundamental rule and requirement of your job, I'm going to take the hit, but you're fired. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I hadn't really pondered that one, so I'm glad you're raising it at the, at the tail of our segment because I, I really don't know how that will play out. Yeah, because I think the, the, what I would hope is that that judgment would be made based on his performance on the job, not on the politics or the optics. And yet, similar to what this has done in its own announcement and process, it will be hard to do that. You know, it'll be hard yeah. to, to, to deal with uh, the aftermath of this in, a, in an apolitical way. But I, I honestly think there would be a way to do that. So I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be some interesting times. It's going to be interesting to see how this this all goes. Uh, let's talk in the last couple minutes that we have here. Can I just jump sure. in quickly, sure. Mitch, to say this? I, I do hope that irrespective of outcomes in the election, that there's something that comes close to what's loosely called closure here. Yes. I really want to know what happened. Well, I think that's my that's my dismount on the topic. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, and my guess is I think that's fair that everybody would like that. Again, I don't think that's a political position. I think that's one that, as American citizens, we would like there to be, we would like to know that there's not corruption within the government, within our major federal agencies, and we would like to know that the system works. That when it's found, it's dealt with appropriately and within the within the law. And, and I right. think that's. I think we all share that. Um, so the last last little. We just have a, a minute or so. But you know, the FBI does more than more than this. I, I thought it was interesting to just keep in mind that you know we talked about this long list of things that they do. Uh, but you and I have talked about cybercrime, and on a number of the shows. And the FBI has a huge role to play, both in cybercrime, both within the country and without. And what's interesting, we don't have time on this show, but you know, that's come up in the election as well. This whole issue yes. of did Russia hack uh, various servers? And we go, well, why does the FBI get involved in that? Because that's part of their investigative responsibility as well. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. They often uh, assist local agencies on cyber crimes too. Yep. So I think that the part of the issue is we not only have a, a pretty heavy lifting here on the domestic issues, we're going to have to deal with it internationally as well. Well, the music is on. That means we've completed our hour of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Stephen, good show. Always good talking with you. Thanks, Mitch. Catch you next week been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, a reminder that you can hear an archive of this show on voiceamerica.com or wagnerandwinnick.com. Until next week, please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.